This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Hanif Baharudin and you're listening to Night School, the show that explores ideas and themes in the social sciences and the humanities. I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest today, Elise Arya Chen, Program Officer at Tanaganita. Welcome to the show, everyone. Hey, hello, Hanif. Yeah. So I thought today, you know, uh, we can talk a bit about migrant issue. And uh, maybe I want to sort of start with a bit of a reflection, right? Uh, the measure of democracy is not always, you know, defined by a process of consensus building. And political theorists like uh, Chantal Mouffe would suggest that democracy is instead defined by almost like an agonistic kind of principle. The word that she uses here is uh, agon, right? Which comes from the classical Greek and carries the meaning of struggle or contestation. So unlike antagonism, which also always tends to sort of like define a force of opposition for its own sake. The concept of the Aegon then is about, you know, the kinds of like struggles that one would sort of like face within a sort of arena. So helping us to understand the rights of women, refugees, uh, as well as migrants would be Elise. Uh, So uh, maybe you can sort of like tell us more specifically what is the sort of work that you do and how do you end up as an activist? Okay. Um, I'm a program officer under our Refugee Action Program in Tsunaganita, mostly primarily working with the refugee communities where I coordinate programs and services with the communities in partnership with them currently, such as uh, the Myanmar ethnic community. But recently we've embarked on an advocacy campaign, which we hope is more inclusive to have the community be front and centre, creating a platform for them to make the decisions and share their insights in developing the campaigns as we call for more refugee rights. Otherwise, then it's just here and there helping the organisation in their migrant rights protection, sometimes Mm. picking up a case or two. Usually those are labour rights issues. Um, or representing the organizations in statements and whatnot. Wow. Mm. Tanagarita has been here for quite a while, right? Um, mm. So how has Tanagarita changed over time? I'm going to try to answer this as accurately as I can mm-hmm. because I've not been working there for as long as I like. Um, as far as I know, Tanaganita has already done its work. Irene, the leader, Irene Fernandez, has already been working on the ground in so many different movements for so long. So working with the plantation sector, the women from the plantation sector was where she started for Tinaganita's work. That was about a decade before the actual establishment of the organization. And I think it was after addressing that there was so much exploitation, especially as women as well. I believe it started off focusing on a lot of health, uh, English proficiency sessions and whatnot. And then when migrants started coming into Malaysia and they realized that this was such an underserved community, about 1993, that was when they started their first program working with the Filipino domestic Mm -hmm. workers. Mm -hmm. That was more on HIV and AIDS research. But as they started engaging with them, they realized that what was on the mind of these migrants were more about security issues like arrest and detention and other labor rights issues. Mm. So then they opened up their programs and services to include more legal support and counseling, case management and whatnot. I believe they've also been working with refugees since the very start. But I think it was about 2010 that was quite... A milestone for them to partner with what is known as COBAM, the Coalition of Burma Ethnics. So that's a coalition of eight different organizations representing seven ethnic groups from Myanmar. And they come up with programs and services such as uh, mobile clinics, wherever that's underserved currently. 
Um, also, most notably, I think, was when they started going into human trafficking. Mm. They were working with sex workers for a while and they opened a halfway house. But when when they were engaging with the sex workers, they realized that tr- human trafficking was very prevalent in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. So they had a national consultation where they looked at how there was not enough services to address human trafficking. Uh, and we didn't have a legal framework to address this issue. Mm. We were criminalizing human trafficking survivors more than protecting them. And we weren't equipped to actually identify and then then to bring these perpetrators uh, to justice. Mm. So from then on, I think we started going into more about human trafficking issues. And if I'm mistaken, about 2010 or so, that was when... Uh, we were invited to join MAPO, the Anti-Trafficking Council, mm-hmm. where Angel Fernandez, one of our executive directors, now sits there to cool. try to work with government agencies to see how can we improve the efforts from the yeah. government side to address these issues. Right. So as an NGO, you seem to be covering a lot of grounds, right? Are there, uh, and normally when you, um, when you think about NGOs, uh, they tend to sort of like focus on one specific issue. Does Tanaganita have any peers or like, is it, Principally, the, like the pioneering organization that was doing an, these, these sort of like addressing migrant and sort of like, mm. sorry, migrant and refugee sort of issues. I think in general, we just try to focus on human rights okay. of really marginalized communities. And here we see in Malaysia, the migrant refugees and women communities are very underserved. Mm. Uh, we do have a lot of other organizations working with women, especially local women like AWAM, WAO. In terms of migrants and refugees, uh, we do have some allies on the ground, such as North South Initiative, who is doing very fabulous work as well, similar to what we do, advocacy and case management. Then you've got a lot of regional organizations also that's mm-hmm. focusing on the migrant and refugee initiatives. How important is alliance making in the shaping of an activist? I think it's really important that the solidarity that you have among everyone that's working towards this is really what strengthens our voice because I think when, when you're the only person fighting for one thing, people tend, you get drowned out a lot. No one really takes that seriously. But being able to join forces with other organizations or communities, we get to have better insights, especially working with the communities. They have that lived experience that us in the civil society organizations don't often have. Mm. Um, so it's, it's the collective effort of of the different programs that we have, the different communities that we engage with, and different experiences that we have that really build to better advocacy strategies and campaigns. Mm. Does it require you to then learn um, local languages, languages that uh, you're probably not exposed to before this? So do you mean languages um, of... So, for those? example, will you, be, will you be required to learn uh, Bengali or uh, Nepali or mm. um, Burmese so usually just to we sort of will, like get by or yeah. to sort of like understand the context in which you're operating a little bit better? Well, luckily, a lot of migrant workers who come here pick up our language okay. really quickly. So, so just being able to communicate with them in well, Malay right. or you English. You know, the funny thing is like when I was in Burma or in Yangon specifically, uh, in fact, I could actually communicate with quite a number of Burmese mm. in Bahasa Malaysia. Yeah. Malaysia. And, and Malay is, is one of, uh, I believe, top 10 most spoken languages as well because a lot of people in this region itself pick up Malay. Okay. Um, but otherwise, then we just leverage on community leaders. So that's really important, identifying who can really represent the views and then also disperse and, and to do rights awareness with their communities. Mm-hmm. Is it yeah. difficult to gain their trust? Are, are they wary of you know groups approaching them? 
I think it depends on the community. Some are much more wary than others. Mm-hmm. But then there's also a different set of struggles. Some of them don't feel like this is a priority for me mm-hmm. to look into more community work. So so it's more of identifying leaders who can articulate things and who can see the bigger picture of the issues and how they can represent the different views and experiences. Again, I think it's it's very cultural. Some of them are more accepting of uh, trusting you. But it's also the historical part of it. We do get stories of a lot of NGOs coming in, promising a lot of things to communities, mm. but they're not following through on that. So maybe it's also a lot to do with that. Right. Uh, Filipinos have been very easy to work with, to engage with. Uh, we've made strikes with the Indonesians as well. Um, I, I believe, uh, personally for me, I haven't engaged so much with the migrant community in my line of work, more on refugees. But I've heard that we've had a bit more struggle with Bangladeshi communities just because sometimes their priorities is more on how do I just get to work and get through mm. that day instead of advocating on a bigger picture. Right, right, right. So what is, uh, given that, um, you know, there's this 19-year-long history with uh, only just one, org- we're only talking about one organisation here. Do you sense that the current conversation have sort of like shifted with the change in government last year? Or how, how do, would you sort of like characterise the ongoing sort of like conversation about migrant issue, migrant and refugee issues today? I have to say, maybe personally, on a personal capacity, I don't see such a huge significant change. Okay. Because after all, we are still in a very neoliberal capitalist system mm-hmm. where we are prioritizing businesses and profits more than human rights mm-hmm. and the welfare of human beings who are contributing to the actual numbers that float our country upwards. So I think when, when we're so prioritized with that, <clears throat> when the commun- when our local society is more focused on GDP than mm. about the actual welfare, that we're not talking enough about minimum wage um, and labour rights. I don't think a lot of us are even focused on our own labour rights. Mm-hmm. The power dynamics in our industries are, are just are so significant that mm. we're taking anything that's given to us without the proper remunerations for right. it. But you are suggesting that, you know, the focus on GDP is also one way of even framing what would be really bread and butter issue for, you know, a whole section of the population, right? That means this framing will entail in some ways thinking about economic growth as being sort of like driven principally by big businesses. Mm. Am I right? Mm. I think it's just for me, maybe I'm, I'm not an economist right. or, or very good at this sector, but I think it's just that priority that we're placing. I think... Economic growth is really important mm-hmm. to sustaining the welfare, the, the programs that we want to put in place yep. to protect our rights as as whether human beings or workers or consumers. But is the prioritization on this a little bit too much? That how, how do you, how, where do you see this being sort of like, how do you see this being communicated to a public? Say, uh, I think we have had our the top guy actually say things okay. that we, we must put... Uh, businesses that I want to prioritize people coming in for businesses that if we raise minimum wage too much then a lot of foreign trade will not come in mm-hmm. but that's happening all across Southeast Asia and sometimes I feel like it's a conspiracy as well to to keep us as this region where cheap labor is number one you right. know right. and that's really doing us in mm-hmm. uh, putting our region just at, at at a discounted rate for everyone else to come over and, and our labor rights are just and then we, it goes back to then 
we are giving all the migrants these jobs. Right. You know, there's not enough for locals. But what kind of local would actually settle for these kind of rates? Right. But at the same time, is it right for us to also give this off to migrants? Mm. You know, we, we are allowing businesses to put more zeros to this. With the recessions coming in, uh, CEOs are not taking as big of cuts compared to the people of the lower income. Mm -hmm. The amount of debt that is being incurred onto whether it's locals or migrants as well is, is just growing consistently. Mm. And compounded to the fact that now there is an unemployment sort of like a problem mm -hmm. as well, right? Uh, how, how much is youth unemployment? What, what's the percentage of youth unemployment in this time? I think it was in the news recently. Do, oh gosh, does anyone know about this? No idea about <laughs> that, those exact numbers, unfortunately. Right. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> but I think it's also a big argument is why are we paying expats so much money and mm -hmm. then we're saying, oh, brain drain is happening. Uh, mm. Why is brain drain not happening when we're not actually being appreciated? We were working really hard to, I believe in the last government as well, it was a very big priority of theirs to ensure a lot of our, our youth go to university and get degrees. Mm -hmm. But then but that doesn't getting, actually guarantee, you know, mm, job security, does it? It's still given to certain groups and it's not necessarily migrants from developing nations only. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. that we're allowing people from developed nations to, to take a bigger cut. Right. Um, but we're not putting enough priority on on enforcing those jobs, um, right. ensuring those jobs also go to our youth. Right. That's a Maybe to help us like, put this into perspective, can you just quickly give us a sense of how big is the migrant population or how big is the refugee population here in Malaysia? How many of them are registered or and what is the unregistered? Or is there an estimation of the unregistered sort of like population? Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe the statistics that I had the last time was 2017, so maybe not as accurate. That was from Immigration of Malaysia. I believe it's about 3 million migrants. For mm. refugees, we have, as of, I believe, two months ago, if I'm not mistaken, about 170,000 registered refugees and asylum seekers okay. with UNHCR Malaysia. Right, right. Are there different strategies that you have adopted to address migrant issues versus refugee issues in Malaysia? And could you sort of like at least give us a sense of what are the different strategies that I think all in all, a big part of our work is always community building. We do a fair share of advocacy, but mm. always keeping grounded to the grassroots engagements that we have. Then there's the differences between migrants who are here for a shorter term than refugees. Mm -hmm. uh, most refugees spend an average of five to ten years here. So then it's also the kind of trust that you need to right. get with these two different communities are a bit different as well. Do but they ever meet? Um, on certain platforms, so we've, we've tried to have a few platforms. Um, there was a women's conference that tried to unite women of the local refugee and migrant community. But I don't think it's as, as large-scale as we want. It's not as, there's no real depth to it as much as we would like because their realities are also very, very different from each other. Mm. All right, okay, so let's take a break. Uh, you're listening to Night School with me, Hanif Baharudin and Simon Soon. And this week, we're joined by Elise Arya Chen, Program Officer at Tanaganita. And we're talking about migrants and refugees. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're tuned in to Night School with me, Hanif Baharudin. I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest for the week, Elise Arya Chen, Program Officer at Tanaganita. We're talking about uh, migrants and refugees. And one of the things that I think we should talk about is the question of rights, right? And how the language of rights has been criticized in some quarters as, uh, you know, some people accuse it as being based on the principles of liberalism. And that's a very contentious word here, right, in Malaysia. And some even say that it's kind of like foreign to our culture as well. So um, what's your take on this? Now, whether or not 
being liberal and progressive is a problem is one thing that's very subjective and mm-hmm. a matter of opinion. But in my opinion, when we talk about human rights, I think it's more synonymous with morality and compassion and something that's necessary for social development. Mm-hmm. I don't see it just as this liberal thing only. Mm-hmm. I think it's very true that uh, human rights have a lot of roots in mm-hmm. Western culture. But I don't think that's just where it is. Right. Um, I'm very new to the faith, but I think Islam also talks a lot about that liberation of oppression, that mm. when you see inequalities, that you stand up for it. And what is human rights if it's not just the fundamental idea that everyone should be given a life of respect and dignity just mm-hmm. because they're born as a human being? doesn't matter where you were born. doesn't mean doesn't matter about the color of your skin or, or what's between mm. your legs. You are given the right to have a home, to have mm-hmm. that security, to have access to food and clean water, to have mm-hmm. education and access to information, to affordable and quality healthcare, and all of these things. It's such a de- demonic idea mm-hmm. to have. And at the end of the day, I don't think it's a very mm-hmm. extreme view. There's nothing super liberal or Western about it. It's that can we be regarded as human beings just mm-hmm. because we are human beings? Um, so I was wondering, uh, rather than sort of like use the word rights, I guess that also tends to have connotation that it comes from you know, a Western European discourse, and it's already been defined within that intellectual tradition. Are there any sort of terms that are more sort of familiar to a local context that has been used to encourage sort of conversations or to make this a much more open platform to bring people into the course? Honestly, I would have to think about that. Right. I think that would require an analysis on really what are the, the touch points with the local community, right? right. But I, I don't know. I, maybe I was just of a certain different upbringing and background that I don't see the word rights as threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, because when, when we talk about it's very aligned, human rights is the, to liberate us from oppression. I thought that's more aggressive of, mm. of a terminology, right? right, right and then right. to say rights. Because ultimately, it boils down to that. It's just that's what's right, that Mm. people are given that equal opportunity to have access to what rightfully belongs to them. Mm -hmm. Um, So to be honest, I'm I'm also quite baffled. I'm still wrapping my head around. Sometimes I feel I don't understand why why there's such huge opposition to this. We're Mm. not challenging anymore. We're not trying to to take away anything that belongs to a person currently. Uh, We're just trying to level the playing fields and, and say that, you know, the disparity between rich and poor, the division based on skin color and and gender and sex has gone on for too long that you know we're going on to 2020 and still we're still playing really petty games Mm -hmm. if we can just level based on these things then we can start tackling the bigger issues you know right so you wouldn't sort of like consider uh, groups that are claiming rights that are in opposition to your stand also maybe in some ways expressing certain sort of like desire for leveling the playing field on some level I think that it's not a matter of rights, it's a matter of privilege, okay. isn't it? And I think when, when so a person... So you want to... Uh, let's distinguish this yeah. too. That's great. Yeah. I think when a person has privilege, we need to realise that someone else is on the other end of that stick. Mm-hmm. And we're in the 21st century. I think it's been long enough since we had so much privilege in the world and then... I think it's about time to see level playing field. And I think that's also the argument between equality and equity mm-hmm. as well. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't put a differently able person on the exact same playing field, not giving them extra access to facilities according to their needs mm-hmm. um, would also not be equality or equity in any sense. So it's also, it's not black and white, right? The right. idea of rights and privilege. But I just think that 
we have the historical material to show that people who have had privilege for so long have not used those privileges to contribute to society based on on that on what they have been given. I don't know. I, I would have to think about maybe because I I understand what it's like to be at the other end of the stick of not having privilege to wonder why you know I feel as capable of providing of, of contributing to society as the other person who's getting privilege just based on face value and whatnot. So then we talk about meritocracy, right? Which is a, which I mm. I also have certain criticisms about. But if you're going on the basis of meritocracy as well, doesn't that mean that we need to level the playing field? That's right. And how would you think this leveling of the playing field works? Uh, a lot of people would sort of like argue that uh, maybe affirmative action, sort of like policies, are a means of sort of like addressing this. Or do you believe a state-led kind of like welfare system might be a more equitable sort of way. Or the American model then is the complete opposite, right? It focuses primarily on private philanthropy mm. as that resource, as that, as that central sort of like resource in which charity is, is being sort of like distributed to those who are disenfranchised. Is there a Malaysian model or are we sort of like veering to any of these strategies? I think you can't really follow an existing model, like to use the American, yeah. whatever successes that they've had in leveling the playing field, so I think quite limited. Right. Would not be accurate. It's, it's not, again, it's not black and white, right? The way we approach things. But I think then it comes to, we need to really study how, how do we level the playing field? Mm. For example, when we talk about gender equality, getting proper gender representation uh, in leadership roles, uh, there was a big argument about having a quota of 30% in all the political realms, right? And they said, why should we do a quota? We should just try to, based on meritocracy again, there's not enough people to fit these roles and that's why there's no 30% women. Right. But I think then it's about, are we really analyzing the situation properly? Mm-hmm. We, we, we always like to think, you know, to grow, to develop is about learning a lot of things, but we're not doing enough to unlearn certain things. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't realize that sometimes there's some things in us that has been indoctrinated in us that makes us think in a certain way. So it's about challenging ourselves as well. Mm-hmm. So when we analyze that environment that we want to change, that we want to enforce this level playing field thing, are we really analyzing the way, the kind of measurements that we're also putting onto it? I think, you know, it's it's so vast when we talk about equality. There's so many different groups that you can't just apply the same thing. Mm-hmm. So understanding their realities and having them at the table right. to give them our insight. A lot of decision makers and even in NGO sectors, we are making decisions on behalf of people without actually having them at the table itself. And I think that's a huge injustice to what we're trying to do, whether mm. in government or non-government organizations. Right. Wow. So how and where do you think unlearning sort of happens for an activist or in the coming of age of an activist? If you can draw on it from your own personal ex, um, experience or how, how did you sort of like come to unlearn so many of the assumptions that we have in society? For me, I, I don't know. I, sometimes I feel like everything happens for a reason when I look at all the opportunities that I had that mm-hmm. led me up to this point and it was all a matter of circumstance and fate mm-hmm. that drove me to go into more youth leadership programs and whatnot and that was where we were given problems to solve and it was them also challenging us mm-hmm. on you know whatever you know now, you need to think beyond that and that was something that, that pushed me beyond the kind of education that I got here in Malaysia. We're not taught to be as critical as we need to be, I think. 
think mm-hmm. we're told answer A to question A, and that's just that's just about it. Then when I went to college and studied the different syllables, it was a we studied history, right? And mm-hmm. often we are told no, it's a it's a particular date, particular person, particular event. But my lecture was if you can give me another reasoning on a different kind of motive, knowing that winners write history, uh, if you can create another narrative that mm-hmm. makes sense, then I'll probably accept that and give you an A as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a matter of challenging whatever that you've been told. And right. that was a very difficult process. I think that's the most hardest part about growing and developing yourself. Right. I think like learning new information, tackling a, a new arena that we're not used to is hard. Mm-hmm. But I think our learning is very difficult. It's being able to look at yourself and say, oh gosh, I've been... I've been actually part of this oppression and this this very regressive way of thinking for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just that it's like you yeah. know the, the steps to conquering addiction is first thing is just admitting that you have an issue that you need to recognize and acknowledge and not expect it to be an overnight process. That I'm still unlearning a lot of things. Sometimes mm-hmm. I find myself doing things like oh gosh I can't believe that's yeah. me, but also having that patience and also being your harshest critic at the same time. Mm. And this idea of transformation then really sort of also opens us up to this question of agency, right? In your line of work, within sort of activist platforms, have there been change of sort of like discourse from this idea of um, seeing the subject of your work as victims and to maybe transforming this discourse or narrative into something that is more positive and to something that is more empowering? Maybe if I can... Uh, answer that question based on my work with mm-hmm. the refugees and that's something that I do notice a lot we we tend to work with them and market them as people with so much suffering and struggle they're so vulnerable and I think that's the failure of our campaigning especially with the media and public we're, we're saying these people are they need our charity and they need our compassion and all these kind of things but instead what I'm trying to do in the coming months and years in this line of work is then to push the narrative to more about they're human beings. Right. Uh, there's so many refugees here in Malaysia who are, they've contributed so much to our country and a lot of great artists, um, a lot of people who come with really rich backgrounds as well. We have this idea that all refugees came from villages, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they aren't educated. But we have engineers, you know, we have teachers who, who were doing really well back where they came from, wanted to come here in a twist of fate, you know, mm-hmm. having to decide between shall I live or shall I die. But I'm not saying that we should just completely discount away those lived experiences. That that is important to bring in into the issue, right? Because we're saying you need to give them human rights because of these vulnerabilities that they're facing. Mm -hmm. But I'm not saying that they should only be seen as people to receive these. I don't think a lot of people notice that refugees are extremely resourceful and very resilient. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, uh, the community that I I mentioned, Kobam, was born when they realized that they're only going to be a limited amount of services that are given to us as refugees. So instead of waiting for, for the local community to recognize our rights, let's let's do what we can for our own community. So then they came up and started networking with organizations that provided health services. They start building up their learning centers and schools. And I think we need to shine more light on these kind of stories, on how empowering that they can be as well. At the same time, for NGOs who are working there, it's also giving them a lot more... 
to give them more credit right. than, than we currently do. We need to build that capacity and, and give them that, that seat at the table, not as a form of tokenism and say, oh yeah, we've got a refugee here, you know, mm-hmm. we've got them part of the group, but actually hearing what they have to say. And then if that doesn't seem like it makes sense, they're not so ready to articulate things the same way. We've all been there. We've, we've, we've been born geniuses as mm-hmm. well. So also having that patience to, to lead them and, and that's something that I'm really happy to see among refugee-led um, initiatives. They've started to to push for you know, nothing for us without us. Mm. And we've seen that, especially in Asia-Pacific region, where the different refugee community leaders and representatives have come together and said, for too long, you know, people in UNHCR, people in these INGOs are speaking on our behalf. And they're saying, there are some great things, but at the same time, we, we, don't, we aren't able to feed, give any feedback on these things. Mm. Are there local so, initiatives? Um, how do you mean? Are there local initiatives in KL along this direction? Um, in terms of advocacy? Uh, in terms of sort of like uh, migrant-led or refugee-led mm. advocacy groups? So in terms of the migrants, so they, they've gotten quite organized. So we've okay. got uh, AMPO for uh-huh. the Filipino uh, migrant workers as well as Sarantau, the Indonesians. In terms of the refugees... Almost every community has got their own community-based organization. Some are much more organized than others because of the the background that they bring forward. So you have the Myanmar Rohingyas, because they've been here for quite a long time as well, have a lot of time to organize themselves in a very systematic way to have mm-hmm. different departments to tackle the different issues and advocate based on that as well. Great. Um, have you tried exploring other avenues that can be used to sort of like raise awareness regarding the plight of the communities in terms of maybe using art and culture as a form of, you know, maybe uh, making them more relatable to others? Maybe this is a good time to mention even a refugee-led initiative, the Paris 2 Theatre, which is led by the communities themselves. What? Um, sorry? Paris 2 Theatre. Paris 2, okay. Um, so there are a bunch of refugees who are exploring expression through uh, theatre arts. Mm. But apart from that, I think in terms of the NGO side, to be honest, I think we focus a lot more on the hardcore issues. And that's also where, when I came in, to this line of work, I thought, no, we need to also push aside from that because I was trained in PR. Mm -hmm. So my mind is very much on public advocacy more than going to the high-level decision-makers. For me, we are, we've recently embarked on the refugee advocacy campaign. So we have a whole group just dedicated on public and media advocacy where we're thinking about partnering with another organization to do food and music festival. But then also my own personal capacity. I'm also trying to do that, getting local artists to perform with refugee artists as well. Um, exploring the different kind of avenues mm. uh, to, to really express and show there's a, there's a different side to me as well. Mm-hmm. So it's not only just about, you know, having them you know, do a song and dance and thereby, you know, affirming their humanity through that performance, right? They're not made to sort of like sing for their supper. Mm. You're saying that there's also other sort of like dimensions yeah. to their life that makes them complex human yeah. beings and recognising that is important. And then that's what we're, we're also trying to not leverage too much on this label of refugee. And that's right. something that we've heard some of my colleagues have have encountered people asking, do you see worth in, in my art because mm-hmm. I'm a refugee or because my art is actually good? And that really hit us hard. Mm-hmm. And I think it goes back to that, that I don't want to focus, I don't want to introduce that, oh, the refugee artist, you know, I want to say the artist from Syria, the artist from Myanmar who's mm-hmm. here, you know, and, and if they want to share their experience with you, then that's up to them. But right. also focusing more on the other aspects of, of what makes them human based on the, the identities that they choose. Given that we've, in our discussion, you have provided a very rich, reflexive 
kind of like response to this huge topic. Is this being reflected in the work by all the NGOs in Malaysia? Mm. Do they talk about this in this way? Do they actually sort of like have this complicated or at least a complex sort of like way of discussing mm. this issue? I think it's it's quite subjective to each organization. Mm-hmm. Everyone has different sets of boundaries of which they operate right. with, right? Some of them do more silent advocacy. You might not see them in the headlines, but they are still doing advocacy in the mm. background because their funding does rely on a certain amount of diplomacy. Versus the Naganita, we mm. would just go all out and tell you, no, that's wrong if you see something. Do you guys um, meet on some level? So we, so we do. Um, so based on what the campaign is, especially if we see different allies. So for example, Beyond Borders, uh, which which is uh, which was founded by Mahi, mm-hmm. um, so she, so she's very into the whole arts, um, yeah, creative right. outlets. So so we are partnering with her for this refugee advocacy campaign, and we are also trying to bring in elements of, of that the creative expression of refugees, trying to focus on this human side. But again, it's I'm not to say it's a fault of the other organizations that they're not putting a focus on this, but because yeah, they are funding requires mm-hmm. them to focus on other things and the necessities, the the legal issues, you right. know, the other more bigger advocacy. So do you uh, do organizations only meet when there is funding or that when there's a project? Or is there an annual retreat sort of a thing where everyone sort of like gets together and trade knowledge and share best practices? Uh, I guess depends on the causes. So like Sedanganita, right. we're involved in women, migrants and refugees. So for example, for the women movement, you've got JAG, the Joint Action Group for Gender mm-hmm. Equality. So we've got our annual evaluation and planning. Uh, so that's more organized and structured in terms of a coalition of NGOs. When it comes to other, so for refugees, we do get a lot of consultations, whether it's regional or national consultations, more in a formal manner as mm-hmm. well. Um, otherwise, it's, it's not just about funding. Yeah, so funding really makes right. it happen, makes it work. Yeah. But a lot of times, it's also ad hoc. We mm-hmm. we see an issue, we need to talk about it. We think that there are certain NGOs who have the insights that are required to form a proper advocacy strategy. Then we just meet up if our current resources allow for it. Mm-hmm. But you know, we are all based around the same area. We've got majority of us are here in KL, and you've got some in Penang. So we work along those lines. Right. Mm. So any sort of like take home points for our uh, viewers today, what's the big sort of like question that still haunts you Gosh. Or, or actually inspires you and, uh, and make you want to get up every day and continue to do this work that you do? I mean, I, I don't believe that it's easy on any level, right? Uh, mm. And possibly not always the most rewarding, at least in the eyes of the public. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not a sexy topic, you know, to defend rights of migrants and refugees to a lot of people who say we need to put Malaysians first and not discounting at all. There, there, are, there are a lot of Malaysians who really need our assistance. But then it's also, I think, when when is it ever going to be enough? We say that when we have enough resources, then we'll focus on these uh, refugees and migrants. But it's never going to be enough, you know. Mm-hmm. It's about we have something, let's, let's offer it. Because I think a lot of us have experienced struggle in some points of our life and that, that should be what drives us to also give a bit to others that's it for me it's a constant cycle of being enraged by the pain and ugliness of the world but also empowered to do something about it i don't want to be one of those people who complain all the time and and bash all these decision makers oh horrible policies and whatnot and just sit there expecting change to happen i think everyone who whoever feels like you know i see something wrong and i wish i could do something about it i think you can mm-hmm. and most definitely it's it's the small little things that you do and just believing that 
your insights do matter as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. That was Elise Arya Chen, Program Officer at Tenaganita. She's joined by Simon Soon and we've been talking about migrants and refugees. Share your thoughts with us by tweeting us at BFM Radio or you can send us an email to nightschool at bfm.my. You can also follow us on Facebook. Look for BFM Night School there. Don't forget to also download the BFM app which you can get on the Apple App Store and Google Play. Thanks once again, uh, Thank Elise you. and also Thank Simon. You. Thank you. I'm Hanif Baharudin and you've been listening to Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.